So wherever we are, the Lord has put us there to testify to him, to live with a good conscience before him, and when the opportunity comes, to try to get to the heart of the gospel. Let's pray as we stand. So Father, we do pray that through this part of your written word, you would equip us to give more of ourselves to Jesus in our witness to him. For his name's sake, amen. amen. Do please take a seat. I've seen um, many a book on evangelism, and um, one of them was called How to Share Your Faith Without Losing Your Friends. And what is good about that title is that it's upfront about probably our biggest fear in talking about Jesus with those who are not yet Christians, and that is how they're going to react. What is bad about that title is that it gives the impression there is a way of talking about Jesus that guarantees no negative reactions at all. And the Apostle Paul, who we're following through this series in Acts at the moment, would have laughed at that. For example, last week we saw that a crowd virtually lynched him because they didn't like him talking about the gospel. Paul knew from experience what happens if you tell people that Jesus is their rightful Lord and God and that they should stop living as if he wasn't, be forgiven through his death on the cross and start life over again with him in their lives by his spirit. That, if you're just looking into it, is the, the Christian message in a nutshell. And wherever it is shared, you just get two reactions. People either accept Jesus or they react negatively because they want to stay where they were in the beginning, living their own lives their own way. So Paul wouldn't have thought much of how to share your faith without losing your friends. He'd have been much more positive about a recent book called Evangelism Made Slightly Less Difficult. Um, some of us here remember the Aussie evangelist John Chapman. He died last year, aged 82. And he was well known for his oft-repeated comment at the end of his life about evangelism. He always used to say, the first 50 years are the hardest. And he was wonderfully realistic. So this sermon is, is basically under the heading, Evangelism Made Slightly Less Difficult, because Acts is all about evangelism. The bit that we're in at the moment is following the example of Paul in his evangelism. So let's turn to page 932 again, page 932 in the Bibles and rejoin Paul in Acts chapter 22. So page 932, Acts chapter 22. Let me quickly recap what we saw last week. Paul has come to Jerusalem, and then in a visit to the temple, he has been falsely accused of bringing in a Gentile, in other words, a non-Jew, which was a, a blasphemous no-no. And so the crowd has tried to lynch him, uh, Thankfully, a Roman commander has stepped in, has arrested Paul for his own safety. He then lets Paul speak to the crowd, which goes okay, until Paul gets to the point of saying that Jesus is in the business of offering salvation to everyone, including Gentiles. And then again, there's uproar, they want to lynch him, and uh, he's hustled away into custody. So now we rejoin it at Acts chapter 22, verse 30, if you look down to that. 
22 verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, this Roman commander unbound him, commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And Paul's example in what happens next gives us three lessons in evangelism. Lesson number one is this. Aim to live with a good conscience before God. Aim to live with a good conscience before God. Look on to chapter 23 and verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. Now why does he kick off like that? It must be because they were saying, look Paul, ever since you became a Christian, you've actually been disregarding God's law and you can't possibly claim to have a good conscience about living up to his demands. And they were accusing him of that because Paul did teach that Jesus' coming has changed the way we relate to the Old Testament law so that some of it today no longer even applies. That's why, for example, there are no sacrifices or priests um, in God's church. That's why the male believers here tonight do not have to be circumcised. And most Jewish people heard Paul to be saying, God's law doesn't matter. Obedience to God doesn't matter. You can come to Jesus, uh, be forgiven, and then live exactly as you please. Now, he never said anything like that. That's how he was heard. What he actually said was that the whole point of Jesus coming and dying and rising again was to bring us back in relationship with God in a position of, of glad and willing obedience. And Paul's point is that you only get to that position by being forgiven by Jesus and having his spirit come and take up residence in your life. That was Paul's experience, and that's why he could say, verse 1, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, he doesn't say clear conscience, um, as if he's claiming to be sinless. He says good conscience, which is claiming to be sincere. He's saying, look, I, I haven't obeyed God perfectly, but follow me round for 24 hours, and it will be absolutely clear to you that that's what I'm aiming to do. That's my sincere goal. But these Jewish leaders reckoned that was a gigantic lie. So verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? So Paul's point is that Ananias is, is claiming on the one hand to uphold God's law, and on the other he's blatantly breaking it by roughing Paul up like this. Whereas, for example, Leviticus 19 verse 5 says, Do not pervert justice, but judge your neighbour fairly. That was the basis of the Jewish legal system that insisted that you were treated as innocent until proved guilty and that you had a fair trial. And that will ring bells with you because you live in this country. That, that is the biblical foundation for our own legal system. So Ananias is blatantly disregarding God's law here. And by the way, we know from sources outside the Bible that he was notoriously corrupt. He stole huge amounts of money from the temple funds. Uh, he'd have been delighted by a, the thought of a gift week like that to get his paws on. 
Um, and he was notoriously violent, so that at one point, the Roman authorities had to caution him about it, which really was the pot calling the kettle black when it came to being nasty to people. But then what do you make of the beginning of verse 3? Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. At this point, several Bible commentaries say, um, look, Paul lost his temper. Um, that was a bad example, wasn't it? But it, it shows that he wasn't perfect. No, he wasn't perfect, was he? But I doubt very much that that is what's going on here. Because this isn't to be read as an insult. If you know your Bible, you'll see that it's a prophecy. Paul is echoing the prophecy that Ezekiel made against the false teachers of his day. Ezekiel said they were like whitewashed walls. And Paul is saying here, underneath the whitewash of Ananias' apparent commitment to God's law, the whitewash of the fact that he holds this office, he's saying his, his life is crumbling and immoral and God is going to bring him down, which God did. Within 10 years of this conversation, Ananias was murdered by his own people. So then what about the next bit, on to verse 4. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people, which is again quoting God's law in Exodus 22 that time. And again, several Bible commentaries are absolutely sure they know what's going on. They say that Paul realized he grossly overstepped the mark and that he had to grovel, but again, I doubt it. There are two ways to take this. I think I go for the second. The first is that Paul didn't know that it was the high priest, but that in verse 5, he's not retracting his prophecy against him, but he is showing respect for the office, even though it's currently occupied by a totally corrupt hypocrite. The other way of taking it is that he did know full well that this was the high priest, that seems more likely to me, and that he's being sarcastic. You say, I didn't know he was the high priest, I didn't realise high priests behave like that, did you? But then again, end of verse 5, he shows respect for the office. Well, backing off the detail of all that, the point is Paul can stand up and genuinely claim that he has lived before God with a good conscience. That is a crucial foundation for our evangelism, without which we'll be very, very quiet. It's always crucial that people can see that we are sincerely aiming to live up to what we say we believe, albeit imperfectly. It's especially crucial whenever we are under attack or being accused in any way for our faith. So I remember, for example, when I was speaking on the, uh, the Durham Christian Union mission, um, a while ago. We started the week with a Grilla Christian event with me and a few others uh, on the panel. I was the main speaker. And at one point a student got very, very aggressive and he accused us all of being hypocrites and then he looked straight at me and he said, look, for example, Jesus told you to sell your possessions and give to the poor. Have you done that? How much have you given away? Now that puts you in a cleft stick because Jesus also said, you know, don't trumpet what you've given. So what I said to this guy was, if you come and talk to me um, privately afterwards, I'll tell you what percentage of my income I give away per year and how much of it goes to um, relief and, and poverty. And it was very striking because he quietened down and he didn't come and ask me that question privately at the end. 
because I think he'd satisfied himself that I was sincere. People are watching us, people are listening to us. They may well ask us questions like that to probe whether we are for real. And it will make our evangelism slightly less difficult if we are aiming to live before God with a good conscience and we're not then caught out. On to lesson number two, which is this. When opportunity comes, get to the heart of the gospel. When opportunity comes, get to the heart of the gospel. Look on to verse six. Now, when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he'd said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him away from them by force, and bring him into the barracks. Now again, some Bible commentaries are very confident about what's going on here. They say Paul knew that he would be protected in Roman custody. Here he is in danger. He knows that if he mentions resurrection, it will split the council down the middle and create uproar. So he throws the theological cat among the pigeons in order to get himself back to safety as soon as possible. I doubt it. Paul is the most fearless evangelist um, I can think of. He said a few chapters earlier in this series, I'm willing to go to Jerusalem and to die for Jesus there if necessary. And he's got this extraordinary opportunity to speak to the Jewish leadership. So I don't think that he's just mentioning resurrection as a ploy for his own personal safety. Partly because his example again and again was to put others' need to hear the gospel way above his personal comfort but partly because of the end of verse 9. Have a look at the end of verse 9, where the Pharisees ask, what if a spirit or angel or something spoke to him? Now, what's prompted that question? It must be that Paul hasn't just been talking about resurrection in general to create mayhem. He's been doing what he always did. He's been talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He's been telling them that the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and what? Spoke to him. So verse 9 they ask, what if a spirit or an angel, they haven't quite got it straight yet, spoke to him? You've always got to assume in Acts that the speaking is highly, highly abbreviated. So when Paul says, end of verse 6, I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, he must have said more. In particular, he must have said that I believe that there is going to be a resurrection and that I'm going to rise from the dead at the end of time because Jesus has already risen in time. Let me tell you about that. So I don't think this was just a ploy to create uproar and get out of there. I think this is Paul taking an extraordinary opportunity to get to the heart of the gospel with the people at the top of Judaism. Now, yes, he knew that they were divided in their beliefs, like verse 8 says. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. In other words, they didn't believe in any personal existence after death. They were the theological liberals. They were the bishop material of the day. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all, says verse 8. 
So yes, he knew that talking about Jesus' resurrection would divide them, but that's not his aim. His aim is to speak the gospel to them, especially hoping that the Pharisees, who already believe in resurrection in principle, will find it believable. And that explains verse 9. A great clamour arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? So the main lesson of this second bit, backing off the detail, is when the opportunity comes, get to the heart of the gospel. I mentioned uh, John Chapman earlier, who wrote the classic book, Know and Tell the Gospel. And in here and in his evangelism training, he always used to give principles for answering people's questions. For example, imagine someone asks you, how can you know that God is there? And John Chapman would always say, his, his dear Christian mother would say, well, what about the roses? Who made them? And John Chapman's point was, you know, that's, that's valid, but it's probably not the best answer. He would say, give an answer that gets to Jesus. So how about saying, well, if Jesus really did rise from the dead to show that he is the Son of God, we can know God is there because he's been here. And as John Chapman used to say, that gets Jesus out on the deck. It's always the hardest word to say in evangelism, isn't it? Jesus. Anything else is fine. Church, Jesus. But once you've got that out on the deck, that sets the agenda. So then someone says, you don't really believe Jesus rose from the dead, do you? And they've given you permission to speak some more about Jesus. So answer in a way that gets you to Jesus. I say that to myself first because I don't always get this right. For example, we were visiting my parents just after Easter, and um, as most of you know, they're not yet Christians. And my mum said, so what do you think of the new archbishop? And I said, time will tell, which is true. But evangelistically, it's hopeless. And having looked at Acts chapter 23, you can now tell me what I should have said. What should I have said? I should have said, Mum, one really good thing about him is that he actually believes Jesus rose from the dead. See, I wonder where the conversation would have gone if I'd had the sense to say that, but I didn't. I blew it. On to lesson number three, which is that wherever we are, the Lord has put us there to testify for him. Wherever we are, the Lord has put us there to testify for him. So by verse 11, Paul is back in his cell, and you could understand if he had been thinking, Lord, how does this serve your plan to get the gospel to the ends of the earth? After all, let's remind ourselves what Paul's plan had been. Just turn back to Acts chapter 19 and verse 21. Acts chapter 19, verse 21, earlier in this series. Uh, Here is Paul's plan, precisely because he knows that it's God's plan to get the gospel to the ends of the earth and to everyone who's willing to listen. So, Acts 19, verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome, by which he didn't mean, you know, I've always wanted to see the Colosseum, yeah, I'd love to see the sights and try one of those legendary San Crispino, San Crispino ice creams. He meant, I want to preach the gospel there. 
And we know from his letter to the Romans, the, the sort of postscript to the letter to the Romans, that after going there, he wanted to go on to Spain and take the gospel there. So you can imagine him sitting in his cell thinking, how is this getting the gospel any further? And for the answer, go back to chapter 23 and verse 11, just to end with. Chapter 23 and verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. In other words, getting you to Rome is my plan as well. It's just not going to happen the way that you thought it was. But wherever I put you, you're there to testify to me. So Paul maybe thought that he would um, follow up some of the churches he'd already planted on his way to Rome, and then he'd do Mission Rome, based at the church there. What actually happened was that he became a, a Roman prisoner because he appealed his case to Caesar, and that's what got him to Rome. But on the way, and at the end of the journey, the Lord put him in the most extraordinary places to testify to Jesus. For example, as we've seen tonight, the Jewish leadership. And then, as we'll see as this series carries on, um, he gets to evangelise some of the, the most high and mighty in the Roman Empire on his way to Rome. And what he later wrote to the Philippians shows how well he grasped this. He wrote, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So the third lesson is, wherever we are, the Lord has put us there to testify to him. So, for example, the Victorian preacher Charles Spurgeon told the story of a woman who came to talk to him and said, uh, Mr. Spurgeon, I would love to offer for the mission field, but I've got six children. And Spurgeon very wisely said to her, then you have no need to go. God has already given you your mission field. Um, talking to Tess, my wife, and many of the young mums in our church. Uh, many of them feel they are now doing relatively little Christianly compared to what they were doing before child or children came along. And they need to grasp that that is now their primary sphere of gospel ministry. It may feel like they are only touching one or a few, but one very striking statistic is that most full-time ministers and missionaries come from Christian homes. Isn't that striking? So I'm the exception to the rule, um, which testifies to the depth of spiritual foundation that children of Christian parents receive. And then this applies to the workplace as well, whether for men or women. I pick up that many of us feel that work really militates against Christian service. For example, I was talking to one of us who's heading into middle management with more responsibility and time and travel commitments, works for an Anglo-American company, flying across the Atlantic quite regularly. Um, and one school of thought says, look, it would be better for Christians not to be in jobs like that uh, if it means that you know, the most they can do is lead a home group. Or maybe they can't even do that. But that overlooks this truth that wherever the Lord puts us, his plan is for it to advance the gospel. So talking to this one of us, he says he's in a company of 500 and he has not met another Christian. Now what if they don't meet other Christians in any other part of their lives? And I wouldn't want the regular business flying any more than he does, but 
Times on planes and trains have given me countless gospel opportunities where people have been remarkably frank and open precisely because they've been 99.99% certainly that they will never see me again. <laughs> Friendship evangelism is not everything. So wherever we are, the Lord has put us there to testify <coughs> to him, to live with a good conscience before him, and when the opportunity comes to try to get to the heart of the gospel. And even if we think different circumstances would make our evangelism easier, we need to trust that the Lord knows what he's doing with us as the only Christian in our family, as the only Christian in our workplace or class or year or whatever it is. And lastly, if the Lord is leading us to get that building in the west of the city and to start a work there, the most important thing is that he knows what he is doing. We do not know right now how to make a church happen over there and to reach all the different people who live in a 10-mile radius, let's say. We don't have the experience or the wisdom of everything it'll take. But then again, Paul didn't know how to evangelize a Roman emperor at the end of his journey. That was going to be a first for him that God had lined up. What was most important for Paul was to trust that God knew what he was doing with him. And what is going to be most important for us in the days and weeks to come is to trust that God knows what he's doing with us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder that wherever we are, at home or work or school or wherever, and however hard we may find it to be there, you have put us there to testify to you. You want to reach people through us. So please help us to go back into our different situations this week, believing that, with a sense of your presence and your purpose for us there. Please help us to see the opportunities Please give us the presence of mind to say something that leads towards Jesus. And please convict us and deal with us where we need to live more conscientiously before you so that we're not held back by a sense of hypocrisy. And Father, for our corporate witness, please help us to discern your hand in these opportunities before us and to reach a unitedly common mind on what you would have us do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.